Hello, and welcome to the Motorstar Podcast. I'm Peter Starr. I'm a motorcyclist, filmmaker, and a former stuntman, and this is the window on the world of motorcycling, the series interviewing those with an outstanding contribution to motorcycling, everyone from the racers themselves to those with a unique role and stories to tell from the history of motorcycle culture. Today's episode is with Niall McKenzie, one of Scotland's most accomplished motorcycle racers, competing at the very highest level internationally in 500cc Grands Prix and a three-time British Superbike champion. Before we get going, I'd like to say a big thanks to Dunlop Motorcycle Tires for coming on board and sponsoring the Motorstar podcast series. They are the reason why we're able to keep the American Legends show and Window on the World series free for all to listen to and to watch on the YouTube channels and the podcast platform they're listening on. Their support is hugely important to us. And if you'd like to do your own part in supporting the show, then please subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channels, and recommend them to your friends. Every little helps. Thank you. And now let's get on with the show. Scotland is a country of about 5 million people where motorcycling has always seemed to breed a hardy kind of racer dating back to Jimmy Guthrie and Fergus Anderson through stalwarts like Bob McIntyre, Alex George and Steve Hislop. To bring my guest today to my window on the world of motorcycling, I reached out to Scotland and a racer who has had ties to American Grand Prix stars Kenny Roberts, Freddie Spencer, Wayne Rainey and others. He has vast amounts of experience in the Grand Prix circuits in the 250 and 500cc classes with Suzuki, Honda and Yamaha. My guest is very popular among the racing fans even though he's not raced professionally in 20 years. He most certainly left his mark on the 500cc Grand Prix circuit and almost as a last exclamation mark on his long career in Grand Prix racing, he came back to the British racing scene and won three consecutive British Superbike Championships. My guest has been described as hard as nails while competing, very fast, and a serious opponent on or off the track. Many of my British audience have told me I need to interview Niall McKenzie. So here he is. Neil, I have some friends that know you quite well and they tell me that your sense of humor is second only to Billy Connolly. Well, I know to be to even be mentioned in the same sentence as Billy as Billy Connolly is an absolute honor. I mean, he's a hero of mine. Um, humor, yeah, yeah, I definitely like to think about a sense of humor. Uh, quite dry sometimes. Not not everyone around the world always gets it straight away, but once you you get to me, no, and and fellow Scots, we're uh, yeah, we we definitely can see the lighter side of life. Is the Scottish sense of humor something very unique to Scotland? Well, yeah, I mean, Billy Connolly's a, a great example uh, because all of his humour is observational stuff and, and that's what, what makes us laugh. It's basically, um, I mean, a lot of his stories and, and even modern Scottish comedians like Kevin Bridges is one and, and it's all observational. It's basically when you look at it, especially Scots, look at their their comedy, it's how we, how we grew up and how we live and what it's like to live there. It's just uh, it's just the way it is. But, yeah, so I guess it, it's unique to the, the nation and and the race of people that live in the, the small country. But um, sometimes with the long grey winters, you have to laugh and you have to have a sense of humour, otherwise you, you wouldn't get through life. Well, they tell me the long grey winters is why the Scots invented scotch. <laughs> Well, in Sweden, they have the same, but they also have a high suicide rate. So we tend to don't commit suicide, just drink lots of whiskey, and that gets us through the winter. <laughs> yeah, well, now we know a little bit about your sense of humour. My first real question is, when did you stop wearing women's night clothes? Well, that, um, well I'll, t- I'll tell you how that all, that all started. Um, um, <laughs> well... When we were young, I'll go right back. And when we were young, I'd start going around friends' houses uh, when the parents might have been away for the weekend or whatever. And we would um, have a few beers, have a few drinks as teenager. This was even before I started racing. And and at some point during the night, it always seemed like a good idea to to find your way into the parents' bedroom and then... Whoever was hosting the party wouldn't obviously know this, so we would we would end up in the parents' bedroom and just try on all the parents' clothes and then come downstairs, obviously 
after a few drinks and with the parents' clothes on, which was funny for everyone at the party apart from the kids that were hosting it. But so that's maybe where it all started. But the the women's underwear thing came from a, from a story. I mean, my I had a bit of a whirlwind of a career, and before I knew it, after I started racing, I, I was I was in the Grand Prix paddock. I don't know how the hell it happened, but anyway, I was in the Grand Prix paddock. We're all sitting around one night, um, and I had only just got to know people like Wayne Gardner and, and Randy Mamola. That was two people who were there, and we were chatting about how we got into racing. And of course, they had flat track, dirt track background, grew up with all of that stuff, and. Um, and never, they never really had proper jobs. They were pretty much full-time racers from kids. But I, unlike a lot of these guys, had a proper job. Um, it wasn't much of a job. It was basically labouring for the electricity board. But So they were. I was asking them how they got into racing, and they filled me in. And then they asked me how I got into racing. And I said, well, it was by chance, really. I, um, I was working. I was quite happy at work. I had an interest in motorcycles. But... Um, I was at work and I got caught by my boss in a customer's house trying on uh, ladies' clothes. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was a sense of humour. Maybe I was nervous. Maybe I just wanted to be a little bit different. Um, but they fell off the seats first in shock and then started laughing. And pretty much from that moment on, I guess word spread around, spread around the paddock that I had a an interest in ladies clothing which is completely untrue but anyway you have to be careful and I learned pretty much to to be careful what I said early on but that's where that story came from. Yeah well I got it out of a Matt Oxley interview that uh, he did yeah. with you with the paddock I think oh. in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah following on from that and I know exactly <clears throat> what you're talking about um, yeah well like sometimes you just play up to, to these rumours and then Matt, Matt wanted to do a fairly serious video interview for Motorcycle News once. Again, I think it was in Hareth, 88-89 time. And he said, I'm going to start the interview with first thing in the morning, I'll come into the, your uh, motorhome. You'll be in bed, getting up, having your breakfast, and then we'll follow you for the day. So I thought it would be a good idea to be in bed, but with my wife's nightdress on. So when Matt pulled back the cover, I was I was there. I don't know, it just seemed, seemed funny to me anyway. So anyway, Matt comes in with his serious video head on and his video crew, uh, woke me up, um, started speaking to me, and then I pulled back the covers and I had all this woman's attire on. So kind of that was set the scene for the, the rest of the day. But anyway, it made me laugh. And I think, I think most of my humour makes me laugh, and I guess that's the most important thing. Yeah, well, I, I got a giggle out of it, and um, that sort of set the tone for me about what am I going to say to, to Niall McKenzie, because we've never yeah. met, and uh, I've never seen your race, and so I had to sort of pick up pieces. I knew about you, and uh, you've got quite a reputation, but I thought when I saw that video, that puts a new light on Neil McKenzie. <laughs> it really does. Let me talk about Scotland for a minute. Uh, you, you and I both grew up um, in the United Kingdom, uh, in council house estates. And most yeah. Americans, where most of my audience is, uh, we're building an audience in the UK, by the way, but most of them are still American. Um, what was life like for you in a council estate growing up? Well, it, it was a happy upbringing. I grew up, grew up in a village about a mile out of town, a little village called Fankerton, which was about a mile out of the kind of local town. It wasn't a big town, but the town was called Denny. Um, the village was was built around the paper mill. There was a paper mill nearby, and so the village was basically built to accommodate paper mill workers, of which my grandfather was one, uh, one of these workers. And so, yeah, it was. Yeah, we, there was there wasn't a lot of money around. There were basically just hardworking people, and and kind of unlike England, council estates were the norm. Um, if you if you lived in your own house, you really were posh and wealthy. So. Um, whereas at the same time, similar people in similar jobs would be basically committing to mortgages and and putting all their savings and money into to buying a house. Where in Scotland, it was a slightly different mentality. Uh, renting was the norm. So I guess families had a little bit more money for luxuries, if you like, because they weren't throwing all the money every month at, at a mortgage. Having said that, we didn't we didn't have a lot of money, but it was a happy upbringing. There was, um, everyone was, a lot of people worked in the paper mill, a lot of people worked in normal jobs. There was a farm at the top of the village, so we spent 
uh, holidays and summer times messing around on, on the farm. And, and it, we had a river, we had a, a glen, we called it, nearby, where we could just play cowboys, do kids' stuff, and it was just a, a very normal upbringing. No one had lots of money, but it's very working class, hard-working people, um, worked hard, drank quite hard at the weekend, uh, and, and, and it was just a happy place. And then as you grew up, going to school, the, you either got a job in the paper mill, or if you're really lucky, you got an apprenticeship at um, Grangemouth, which was um, a, 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 an emerging town at the time because ICI and BP had some big petroleum plants there. So if you got an apprenticeship down there, you really had made it, or you went to the paper mill. So that that was, was your goal, and that's what, what most people did. Yeah. Well, you lived in a part of Scotland that's actually quite famous, and you have a big hero there called William Wallace. And yes. the, the two big battles that I recall was the Battle of Stirling Bridge, where he absolutely annihilated the Brits, or the English, should we say, and then yeah. um, the Battle of Falkirk, which is very close to your village, where uh, yeah. unfortunately uh, uh, the Wallace army was uh, defeated almost as badly as they defeated the English at Stirling Bridge. Did you yeah. grow up knowing about William Wallace? Because he was a major Scottish hero. Well, we did, because in Stirling is kind of equidistant to Falkirk from where I lived in, in Denny, and, and there's a really famous monument there, Wallace Monument. And while we weren't, we were really aware of William Wallace, and he fought for Scottish freedom, and, and then of course the film came along and made it made it famous worldwide. But we were aware of William Wallace, and we were we might not have known the dates and and the battles that he won, but we knew that he won and he lost, and he was very much Scottish, and he was kind of. Uh, a guy out there fighting for for freedom and for the Scots. So, um, well, we didn't know all the details. We we grew up being proud of him, and we were well aware of him because there's, a, like I said, there's a really famous, beautiful monument. <coughs> excuse me, in Stirling. I've actually been there and, and stood at the top and looked through the uh, the river bends where the battle took place in the bridge. Yeah. That uh, all these the rebuild of the bridge and. Um, it was quite an interesting thing. I did a motorcycle tour of Scotland some years ago um, on my own, followed uh, the trail of Braveheart, as it were, the, all the battles, all the places, the, yeah. the, the, uh, you know, the barns of air and all of those places. It, uh, it was quite a memorable trip for me. Um, still on, the, on the, the, the issue of Scotland, there were two very famous Scottish motorcycle racers that were my heroes when I started racing back in the early 60s, 60, 61, and that was Bob McIntyre and Alistair King. Did, yeah. Are those people, do they register on your radar as well? Very much so. I didn't see Bob McIntyre race, but I, I, when I got interested in, in motorcycles and particularly racing, then Bob McIntyre was a name that kept popping up. And my interest in motorcycles came from a family that I went to school with. Um, Alice and Shirt Ray were two brothers that went to school. And the reason I became familiar with Bob McIntyre and his name and his exploits were um, he had a mechanic called Pim Fleming. And Pim Fleming worked for my two friends' dads, who also raced. Uh, he fettled his TZ750. So I would see Pim once a week, and they would sit around having their cup of tea while they were working on the bikes, long before I started racing. But I would just uh, hang around with these guys. And, and so I became aware of... Bob McIntyre through Pim Fleming, who had worked with him at Grand Prix and the Isle of Man, and, and so we had lots of stories. And and the other guy, uh, Alistair King, I became aware of actually a bit later on because I actually became friends with his nephew, David King, uh, who's kind of similar age to me, and he's a car salesman in Stirling, and we just, uh, our mutual interest in, in motorcycles um, uh sort of brought us together and and so yeah I still speak to David King Alistair's nephew so um while I, I don't know everything about their career uh, obviously uh great guys uh, flew the flag for Scotland but one anything I have studied and read about Bob McIntyre was um and he, he's someone I kind of tried to emulate a little bit when I was racing someone that tried to tick all the boxes he was uh, he was ahead of his time really just staying fit uh, very organised, a great engineer. He, he really was a full package where I think a lot of guys around him at the time just wanted to, to ride the motorbikes and, and go racing, whereas Bob was uh, he was full package and, and, and really was ahead of his time considering it was 50s and early 60s. Yeah, and the first uh, racer to go around the Isle of Man at over 100 miles an hour, which yeah. was quite, yeah, quite something quite, in those days. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think that 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 probably remains why he is most famous. But of course, he he was a very strong rider, both Nile Man and and the Grand Prix circuit as well. Yeah, I consider myself fortunate to watch both him and Alistair race many times between oh. 60, 62. Well, Bob got killed in 62 at Alton Park, but uh, yeah, it was a very sad day for the kids of Coventry yeah. that followed him religiously, basically. I can imagine. From the interviews that I've watched on, uh, on YouTube and so on, and I would encourage people to go and watch some of these interviews on YouTube because I think you've, uh, you've got a really interesting side to, to racing. But you seem to look at racing as one big adventure. How seriously did you take your racing? Well, yeah, looking back, then, I, again, just, just going back to my upbringing and my childhood and the chances of, of me growing up where I grew up with, with dozens of friends and, and some of us liked bikes, some of us didn't. The chances of becoming a professional racer and going off to race in the World Championship was absolutely zero. So, as I said, it was a, a bit of a, a whirlwind and... and I started racing for fun, and for the first two or three years, it was very much that. And then I just seemed to things seemed to gain a bit of momentum. And before I knew it, I was managed to pack in my job, and I was and I was racing for a living. But it, it still seemed like from day one, it was just all about riding bikes as fast as possible. I didn't put too much thought into it. I wish maybe I had, or I had someone that could have pointed me in the right direction. But I, I think. Through all of it, I, I raced for 20 seasons and, and 18 of these were as a professional rider and, and most of the time I was, I was just having fun but obviously took it as serious as, as possible. But um, yeah, it, from a different background, things might have been a little bit different but uh, there's no question that it was fun from day one until until the, the day I hung up, hung up my letters. Yeah. The uh, British Superbike Series is well known in America as being one of the most competitive series uh, in racing. And uh, I watched it from time to time on television when, when we can get it. That was your most successful period in racing, as I understand it, during the 90s, three times a uh, British champion. What was it about that series that really allowed you to create the aura and create the skills that launched you into uh, Grand Prix racing? Well, I think it, it was the, the previous years in, in, in Grand Prix. Uh, I was very lucky to be around 500 Grand Prix from 86 and, until 93, giving it, giving it my all um, or everything I, I, I had to, to try and make it a success. And, and yeah, so in 96, I came back to the UK. The British Superbike Championship was just uh, in early stages then. That was the first official year in 96. Um, I had a young family and I was ready to, to just be at home but I think all the lessons I had learned and the hard work I'd put in at the Grand Prix coming back then um, I realised that I was probably at, at a different level um, just because of the, the years and the company I had been racing against I come back I was on a good bike with a good team and it, it just felt felt right. The circuits were familiar. I had grown up on the circuit, so I knew where I was going at most of the tracks. I was able to ride at 95, 98% because some of the tracks, maybe safety wasn't just the same as the Grand Prix track. So I, I, I always had that in the back of my mind that I needed to get to the end of the race. So I found I had a, a great team around me, a great bike and the experience and and the, the hard work I'd put in earlier just gave me that, that advantage. And I th that's definitely what, certainly the, the three years I won the championship just stood me in good stead. Yeah. So basically what you're telling me is that the, the Grand Prix stood you in better stead for the British championships and not the British racing stood you in good stead for the Grand Prix. Yeah, you're right. I, I yeah, I... Going, going back to the early years of my career, things just happened quite quickly. And before I knew it, I, I, I was in Grand Prix and not really knowing how I got there. So it was just a case of doing the best I could with uh, the, the experience and, and knowledge I had. But um, but yeah, through through all of that hard work and then, yeah, and then coming, and I feel I was probably riding at my best in in the late 80s, early 90s. And, and I was just, able to to use all that experience and, and put it all into practice when I come back because at that point when I came back to BSB I, I very much was in control and knew what I was doing knew my strengths and weaknesses and how to be as strong as a competition and and stronger if I needed to dig deep and 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 I, I knew I was the complete package but that just came from 
the the previous twelve or thirteen years um, from starting racing really it's a never never ending learning process. Uh, and even when I was in BSB, I was I was still learning, but I had I had kind of done my time, done my apprenticeship, and uh, and so coming back to BSB was it was it was a, a really fun time, really enjoyable. And as I said, just because I had everything around me and I didn't have to lay it on the line every weekend to to make sure I got the job done. The um, the age at which we see MotoGP riders riding today versus the age that I, in my era in the 60s, there were a much older crowd then. It's yeah. almost like riders didn't make Grand Prix until they were, uh, well, except for Halewood, basically yeah. mid, uh, mid, um, mid-20s, you know, and, and later even. Yeah. Um, and it's, it was a very different thing. In your era, was age an issue? Did, you, did that make the decision to move into Grand Prix or get out of Grand Prix? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's every rider's dream to get to Grand Prix. Independent. I started racing when I was 19, which was quite late in the grand scheme of things because a lot of riders had, were starting when they were 16 at that point. Um, but, yeah, going back to the present, it, unless unless you're in the Junior World Championship or doing some of the major junior championships at, at 13, 14, and making progress, then it's almost too late. It's you have to be in there young and be getting your experience together. So it's it is it is tricky. Um, having said that, we got Valentino Rossi in his forties, so the the age spread is incredible. He's taken things to to a new level, and even people like Max Biaggi was was still winning world championships in the late thirties as well. So. So the, the the spread of age is 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 quite unique now. Um, so in my era, yeah, you were okay, sort of late teens, early twenties, getting into Grand Prix. But when you were coming to your your late twenties, early thirties, the fashion then was you were you were too old, and uh, certainly early thirties, mid thirties, you definitely were too old, and and that was the feeling in the panic because it wasn't it wasn't true, but it just was the way the way at the time. Um, all of my contemporaries either stopped racing or were pushed out of racing through injury at that sort of age. Wayne Gardner, Wayne Rainey, Kevin Schwantz, Eddie had had enough uh, in his early 30s. Um, part of that was just, just the, the bikes hammered them weekend in, weekend out, and, and they'd kind of had enough by that age. But but now um, these guys in their early 30s, mid-30s, late 30s, they're, they're still at the peak of their their uh, ability and fitness and and it's okay but you have to you have to be in a very a very young age now otherwise you're going to miss the boat and and certainly for motor three and a little bit of motor two they're looking at riders 16 17 um late teens for motor two early 20s and it's um it's you you definitely have to be in there young and and unless you're within a, a great federation or you've got family with a lot of money, you can't you can't find a way to go racing on your own at fourteen. So you have to be within a an organisation that's that's going to make that happen. So so it is tricky. Well, that brings up the subject for me of the Red Bull rookies. Yes. And um, the we had a, a tragedy in um, in America with the Red Bull rookies where we had a, a death, and that seemed to kill the entire project because in America we're lawyer crazy and people sue over the slightest damn thing and um did that particular death of that young boy uh, was that the reason that red bull rookies sort of took a, a decline yes i think in the states um i would say it definitely had an effect because the, the red bull rookies started in, in europe the very same year they started their campaign in the states and and initially it was designed and the plan was it would run in parallel so they'd be finding Europe finding European riders for the, the European series and finding riders in North America, South America, um to 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 help the American contingent. But yeah, um I believe it was an Argentinian uh kid that, that lost his life and I know that that was early in the series and it really it really kind of uh, for Red Bull, um, they wanna they wanna sell drinks. They they wanna they wanna 
be user friendly for for youngsters and and really that was kind of defeating the object it's not not a good thing if there's if there's going to be fatalities in a series that they're sponsoring so um i don't know the exact details but i, I know it, it definitely had an effect and of course the series only uh, ran for one year in the states and and thankfully it has continued uh, in europe to to great success but um yeah, if that hadn't happened, I'm sure things would have uh, kept going for quite a, quite a while longer. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it it scared Red Bull, and uh, yeah, it wasn't it was certainly wasn't part of the plan. It was just a, a disastrous and and. I'm sorry, I just had to decline that. Um, well, I'll get it through this. Uh, Toriano Wilson was actually the name of the young man that um, uh, that unfortunately got killed in America. But um, we have very few opportunities in America for people to actually break through into the world class. I mean, we, from the Freddie Spencer, Kenny Roberts, Eddie Lawson, Wayne Rainey uh, era, which basically came from the dirt tracks of America through road racing and then to Europe, there was a, a, a big gap um, after that till Nicky Hayden. And Nicky Hayden was a dirt track racer also. Yeah. Now, fortunately, we've got Wayne Rainey, who is the president of Moto America, trying hard, I think, to discover and encourage the next batch of American racers to step out into the world scene and go to Europe and, and face the best the world has to offer. What, do you, what are your thoughts about the whole Moto America idea? Yeah, I, I follow Moto America and, and the sport classes quite closely. We, we're lucky that we do get it on TV over here, so, so we're watching. Our race series director, Stuart Higgs, as well, that, that's masterminded BSB over the years, has been uh, assisting Wayne Rainey. I know he spent some time over there. So I speak to him and he says, yeah, the, the infrastructure's there, but it's it's a long, a long-term process. And... and and yeah, he says everyone's doing great work. There's obviously lots of talent there. There's lots of enthusiasm. Um, but he says it's got to be a long-term project and then build it step by step. It's not going to be an overnight sensation, if you like. Um, and I guess I guess the, the problem in America that we don't have in the UK is, is the distance between circuits. We have, as you know, we have dozens of circuits on a really small island and a really small radius so we're, we're spoiled for racetracks so putting a series together is is relatively easy compared to trying to do it in in the vast country um over there so that that, that i think that's geographically is the, is the first problem but um and of course bike sales have, have declined um certainly super bike sales have declined so the manufacturers are less interested um over here, we've been we've, in our series. We've managed to shore teams up, and and teams have been supported by sponsors from outside the motorcycle industry. So we haven't um, had to rely solely on the manufacturers' interests. So we've been been very lucky. We've we've got great TV. We've got a great package um, to sell to sponsors. So, um, but that that's built, been building up over twenty years, twenty five years. Um, so yeah, the, I mean. There's no reason why it can't happen in America, but it's certainly a big job. And it, as, as Stu Higgs says, it's a, a long-term process. But you've got the right guy fronting it, Wayne Rainey. Everyone's got massive respect for Wayne Rainey. And I'm sure uh, if Wayne tells someone to do something, then they'll take notice and they'll do it. So, it's, But it, it does seem like it's, a, it's yeah, it's a, a, a going to be a long process. The other thing as well is we've got massive, when we're allowed, spectators. We've got massive following and circuits... Um, can earn money from from good crowds and good spectators, and that's never been the case in the states either. So, um, and again, it's because we can have a fan base that can follow the the championship around um, uh, in a again relatively small country. So we are lucky in in many respects, and it's but it's a tougher job in the states. Yeah, we used to have a a race called the Daytona Two Hundred that was an international spectacle, and. Um, Back in the days when Agostini and Sheen and people like that used to come over and race that event. And uh, it was was the first race of the year and it set the tone for the rest of the year, I think for a lot of a lot of people. We don't have that anymore. It's Daytona's, I know disrespect to them, but it's become more of a club race than it was an international spectacle that it was in the, uh, in the 80s particularly. And um, 
it's like we've gone downhill from that aspect. We don't even have Laguna Seca Grand Prix anymore. We do have Cota when we can have it. But uh, it's just the distance in America, the cost of travel, all the other things seems to be pointing to the fact that young riders in America have to sort of break the bonds, go to Europe, and become a citizen of Europe, basically, to, to make it. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's tough. I was lucky enough to attend Daytona a couple of times, and it really was, uh, that was uh, early 90s, and, and it, it still, that was the, the kickoff for the season ahead, and it was supported internationally. Lots of top superbike riders, all the best Americans, and yeah, it was a fun race, but it was also an important race to kick off the season in March, nice and early, and a bit of sunshine. Um, so yeah, the, the, the format then was, was brilliant. Um, it, yeah, it's just uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just hard things. Things have changed. Um, teams are not going to let the top riders go and do that, I suppose. So that makes things things difficult. Did you ever race um, in the match race series? I I I did once, and I try not to talk about it or I try not to think about it. I was in the match race in nineteen ninety one. Uh, I was riding in the Honda UK team with Carl Fogarty and. Uh, my bike wasn't the best, uh, so it was almost like I wasn't there. Um, but yeah, I did. I did ride uh, in the match races in 1991. I could remember the riders coming in was Freddie Spencer, and Miguel de Hamel. It was it was past the golden era of the the transatlantic match races, but uh, I did attend uh, one event. Yeah, I televised the 1984 event at Donington, the last time that Kenny, Eddie, and um, Freddie Spencer and Randy Mamola were on the same racetrack together. And uh, wow. it was quite, a, quite an event. And Freddie, unfortunately, crashed, broke his yeah. ankle, missed the Spanish Grand Prix, and it cost him the world title, I think. So yeah. the Japanese no, yeah, the Japanese then said oh, yeah. uh, that was it. No, no more world-class riders riding the match race series at that time. Now, um, yeah. oh, sorry. Uh, you mentioned Carl Fogarty. Uh, 1993, yeah. the last lap of the British Grand Prix. Um, yeah. The last corner, the last lap, I watched it on, the, on YouTube and uh, brought back a lot of great memories and uh, walk us through, if you would, the last lap of that particular race because you tailed Fogarty for the longest time, then all of a sudden, um, the last corner, you just sort of squared it up and off you went. Please talk to me about that. Yeah, so Carl was on the Kijiva, I was on the, the Bob McLean WCM uh, Rock 500. Carl made a brilliant start, rode, rode at the front of the race for, I don't know, first 10 laps and then dropped back a bit, but obviously still close to the front in, in the, the top four or five. Uh, I made my usual bad start, tracked him down. I actually got past him a couple of times, but he barged straight past me, as Carl did, so the, the battle was on for third all the way to the flag. Last lap, I was tucked in behind them, looking for an opportunity, not sure if I was going to get it. And then we, the last couple of corners, he just seemed to be flapping a little bit, seemed a little bit flustered. I didn't really know what was going on. And then we came into the last corner. And my thoughts at the time was he had uh, not gone back enough gears, didn't get the bike stopped. Or he had, and then when he pulled on to start finish straight, the bike died. I shot past him, um, denied him his... He's only ever Grand Prix podium, so I, for me it was amazing. Finished uh, third. Um, the official story from Carl was that he, he was running out of fuel, um, which I'm sure was was true, or that's what he thought. The only thing to kind of counteract that was Agostini was the Kajiva team manager that year, and he said, "Well, Carl managed to ride around the slowing down lap and and finish, but if Carl said it ran out of fuel, then it ran out of fuel." and to be honest, on the, the day, I, 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 it wasn't important to me that I had beat Carl Fogarty, but it was amazing to, to be on my, the podium at, at my home Grand Prix. Um, I had a couple of close ones. I finished fourth a couple of times, so I felt like I needed to, to try and be on the podium at least once. So, uh, so that was it. And uh, yeah. Well, you were on the podium um, with Wayne Rainey and Luca Cadalora, so it couldn't have been that bad. It was, yeah, it was good. It was good, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, last little bit of trivia there. The last time Dunlop um, finished the top three in any 500-jump Grand Prix, the last time they ever had uh, three riders on the podium. And, yeah, unfortunately, a couple of races after that, Wayne didn't race anymore, so very proud to. I shared the podium with Wayne a couple of times, uh, two or three times, so, yeah, particularly proud of that one. 
You had an offer, as I understand it, to ride for Kenny Roberts at one point. How did that come about? Yeah, that well, that, that led on from the match races you were talking about. The As Cal Fogarty's teammate um, and very much number two rider in the Honda UK team in, in 91, I, it was a disaster. And never one to quit, but it wasn't doing me any favours. I was riding around at the back of races with riders I'd never even heard of, so I knew things weren't good and I was pretty convinced it wasn't me. So I quit the team uh, midway through the year. And the day after I quit the team, uh, Yamaha team boss, Mr. Maikawa, called me from Japan. He heard on the grapevine I had left the team and would have liked to race for Yamaha factory at the Suzuki Air race. Um, and I said, yes, but would it be possible to somehow find me a 500 for the British Grand Prix at, at Donington? And he basically says, leave it with me. Will you race at Suzuka? I said, yes. So when I got to Suzuka, he said, I think I've fixed things and we managed to uh, find, find another bike for the Kenny Roberts team to look after you with some skeleton staff at the Grand Prix. So that's how that came about. It was Mr. Macau in Japan that um, persuaded Kenny to to give me a run out as payment for riding at Suzuka. So, um, and that basically set me up back in, in Grand Prix. I finished seventh that day. So uh, it was an okay res- result for a, a one-off ride. And then uh, I had a few more rides toward the end of the season that led to a full-time return in 92. But yeah, it was great. I I'd got to know Kenny over the years, so it was it was nice to, to ride for the team at least once. Well, it's... Um... When you went into Grand Prix, there was talk about the relatively huge amount of money involved in it. Um, how did you view your contracts and um, what kind of money was involved? I mean, what, how did it change your life financially? Well, I, yeah, I, I went from earning pretty much zero money in, in racing to having a factory Honda contract. And, and so I had no clue. I had no manager. I had no clue. Um, how much riders got paid. You hear all these stories, but of course you don't really know. No one really, no rider will tell you. Certainly no rider ever told me how much money was involved. Um, so I, I had no clue. I mean, I I was taking home something like five or six thousand pounds a year um, while I was working and, and when I was kind of struggling to get by racing on my own. So, so if I was earning £6,000 a year, £10,000 a year would have been amazing. Um, but I, I still had no clue. And I didn't know if it was tens of thousands or it was hundreds of thousands. I don't know what Grand Prix riders got paid. Um, anyway, I ended up in this situation with Air Kanemoto in Japan, in HRC, with Mr. Guma. Um, Air got me there. I tested at Suzuka. Miraculously, went really fast. So the next day, they offered me a contract, and they asked me how much money I would need. And I literally can picture myself. It's like sitting here now. How much money? Like I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I'd been riding for Suzuki, and they said, "So, how much money was Suzuki going to pay you?" And I said, "I, I didn't really know." I said, fifty thousand," and I didn't know if that was dollars or pounds. And they, anyway, it's no secret. They said, okay, and they slid the contract across the table when it was £100,000. So I probably asked for way too less than I could have got, but it was just mind-blowing. I looked at these numbers and signed the contract, put it in my pocket and, and took it home, and it was that ridiculous. I was that naive. And, and so anyway, that, that was where it all started. Well, you're lucky that it wasn't, um, you know, 100,000 yen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's another story about that. <clears throat> the um, two years, two I, the first year I um, I rode HRC and I was in Dainese Leathers, and Aris Taichi, Japanese brand, were coming to the fore then, and they got in touch with me at the end of '87, and I, I sat down with them one day to talk about a contract, and Dainese had paid me. 30,000 US dollars to wear their leathers in 1987. And so I sat down with Mr. Iwata from Taichi and he said, oh, I really like the leathers and I was more than happy to, to, to change from Dainese. And they said, so Neil-san, how much money would you need? <laughs> Same question. 
And I, so I thought, well, I got paid $30,000 from Dainese. Um, I know, I'll just go mad and I'll ask for $50,000. So I said, Mr. Iwata, could I have? And I started to say 50000 And he said, 50000 UK pounds? <laughs> oh, okay. and I went, All right, which was about another 40% more than yeah, the exchange rate. And he said, uh, and can it be a two-year contract? And I said, okay, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, yeah, yeah, I needed to get a manager, really. But um, being a Scot, I was, I was too tight to pay the 20%. So bubble through. Uh, but honestly, the, the money was amazing for me. It was probably, I, I could probably have had a, a lot more, but it was just ridiculous compared to what I was used to. So I was more than happy. Yeah. It, was, it was more than I ever dreamed of, so... Well, let's go back to your sense of humor a little bit, because part of the videos that you can find on the internet is this, about this character called Mark. <laughs> who, who, dreamt, who dreamt that one up? Well, Mad, well Mark, um, he's not a very nice person, actually. You wouldn't want to meet him. He's, um, in lockdown, we were, we're all a bit bored, and, and I've got two sons that race, and they've grown up, we've grown up watching we call them motocross dads in the UK and they're basically mad dads reliving their youth or reliving a race or trying to live out a racing career they never had. So we, we see all these mad dads, not all dads, but a lot of dads are, are completely nuts. And I've probably been one of them when my two kids racing. So Mark is a, it, it, it's all quite true. The stuff he talks about and the stuff he acts out is basically, like I said, lockdown were a little bit bored and we said, why don't we kind of, Taylor is the main instigator, my eldest son. He says, you need to be Mad Mark. Um, and and we have just kind of act out things that we've seen with other parents and kids racing, whether it be motocross or road racing, um, and just the madness. And the, there's there's a lot more to come. Um, he, um, yeah. So uh, we Neil Hodgson, my great buddy, his dad's called Mark, so... And Neil said Mark, his dad, Mark, was a little bit mad when he was uh, set out racing. So he's a little bit based. The name comes a little bit from Mad Mark Hodgson. Yeah. Freddie Spencer's a name that's been um, uh, very big in America. I made three films about Freddie back in the early 80s. Yeah. And uh, you were his teammate in 1989, was it? Well, incredibly, 87, 88 and 89, although he was, his career was starting and stopping a little bit. Um, so three years I was in Freddie's company, 87, uh, we started testing together Surface Paradise. Freddie was going to be my teammate that year, he was going to run in standard Honda colours and I was alongside him in, in the yellow HB colours, uh, Erv looking after both of us. He got injured at Daytona straight after the testing and then kind of came to Japan, didn't race and then he, he appeared a couple of times during the season. Um, so then everything was reset for 88. I resigned for HRC. Freddie was going to move my teammate. We went to Australia, had a good week's testing there once again. And then Freddie came to Japan and, and basically said he was retiring. And, and that was that. So uh, for the, at, the, at the first round, so I was on, on my own with Ervin in 88. Um, and he went off, did a little bit of car racing. And basically throughout 88, and Freddie, Freddie's told me this story and I've, I've talked to him and I've actually interviewed him and done some chat shows with him. Agle kept bringing him in, in 88 because he was about to lose his Marlboro sponsorship. And Freddie said the money just kept going up and up and Agle kept... Um, just if you would answer one more question about Freddie. Um, I've read somewhere where in the early days of you knowing about Freddie Spencer, he was some sort of a, a god with you and oh. you held him in great esteem tell me about that experience of how you learned about freddie and why he was so important well before before i even started racing when i became a fan in 1980 freddie was was appearing and then in 81 82 of course he just put honda back in the map so he was an absolute god and of course he was very much an enigma and he stood out he was different he was from the bible belt in louisiana he, he wasn't the hell raising kenny roberts or randy momoa type so he was just this amazing character that could do anything on a motorcycle so he's absolute god so to become his teammate well, was was incredible but i remember watching when i was in 250 gps one day 
I was sat on top of the, the motorhome in, in Yugoslavia, and uh, Freddie was on the Rothmans Honda, and he, the wind, it was quite windy, and when Freddie would go down one straight, the wind would be behind him, and then he'd come back up the other straight, the wind would change, and it just seemed like the wind was following Freddie around, so it was, it was bizarre, and I watched it lap after lap, and I thought, oh my God, he is, he is, he is. He has come from heaven. He has got God behind him, isn't it? But, I mean, he was just so special. A lovely guy. Uh, no one really got to know him, but he's he's become more personable and come out of shell a lot more in recent years. And, and yeah, and a very well respected then and now member of the paddock. No, he's, um, I met him first in 1980. We was, I was making a film for Suzuki and Freddie was riding for Honda and Freddie won the race with such a huge, huge margin, Suzuki said, I'm not sure we want to finish this film. <laughs> so, yeah. He literally blew everybody away, and that was in uh, 1980. And then we filmed him in 81, 82, 83, and uh, different yeah. films. Um, I want to bring up Cal Crutchlow's name. The, the yes. fact that the, the Brits um, have gone through a dearth or a lack of, of champions, championships, um, when Cal Crutchlow came along, I thought, wow, this is going to be interesting. This is perhaps a possibility of, a, of you know, being another champion after Barry Sheen. It was some years since Barry Sheen had done it. In fact, funnily enough, I actually went to the same school as Derek, his dad, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, so when I first met Cal, uh, that was the first thing we, we learned about each other, both from Coventry and, oh, yeah, my dad went to Caledon Castle. I said, oh, that's funny. So did I. <laughs> you know, it's a comprehensive school in those days. Why do you think it is that there's been such a dearth of English champions since Barry? And what is it about, um, I mean, people like Cal, they almost made it, just didn't quite make it over the hill. Yeah, the, again, it's the kind of infrastructure and, and, and the background, Australia, America, even Europe, maybe something's due to the climate where kids can go and they can run around on dirt bikes, flat track, and, and there's, there's something. So they, by the time they become getting to the early teens, they've, they've got the skills to know. They've got the skills to use to, to go racing. So I guess they just have, although it's a lot better now, we've got some really good, strong junior championships. I think things can be, again, long-term, better in the future. Um, and so it was, it was just all a bit, a bit haphazard. But Cal... Cal obviously was a bit special, and Cal had no special treatment. I remember seeing Cal and Derek in the Scrappies van and caravan driving around the country, doing club races, trying to make it happen. And and they did it old school, did it did it the hard way. So he certainly he he didn't have any special treatment, or he just made it happen. They were just determined. Um, why he didn't make it? Maybe maybe because of the the. The, the early years, dirt tracking, learning these skills at an early age, having every tool you possibly need in the toolbox, like Mark Marquez has, um, or Casey Stoner, or Jorge Lorenzo, uh, or Valentino Rossi, learning all these things at a really early age. Maybe there was just a few key things missing that he couldn't put the complete championship winning season together. But an amazing feat being the most successful rider since Barry Sheen and winning MotoGP races, he, he's he's done incredibly well. But I think you just need to be the full package from, from day one. It's maybe difficult when he really got going and got into world championships, he's in his 20s. Um, and and then maybe just all that, that early year stuff, uh, he just missed out on that. That, that could be one reason. Yeah, I've been a, a big fan of his and followed his career and was just hoping you know, that he would actually pull that last one out and, um, and become champion. Uh, let's talk a little bit, if we can, about uh, your two sons. Um, you know, I did a film in, in 2000 when Kenny Jr. won the world title, and we did a film called Like Father, Like Son. And you've got the possibility of uh, either one of your two sons becoming a major champion. How does that sit with you? Um, well, the diff it's been different periods of our life. It's, it's, it's been different. We they started playing around in fields like most kids do on PW50s when they were young, and that's great fun. Then they went mini bike racing. And then before you know it, my wife and I are standing on the pit wall at, at big racetracks, and they're on big, fast, scary motorbikes, and it's dangerous. And and we've, and we've had the conversation where, why, why have we done this? Because you're not 
you're not programmed to give your kids dangerous things to do and before you know it you are so we questioned if we'd done the right thing but they they grew up in the paddock and and I guess they they got a feel for it and we've and since then we've had many times had the conversation that this is dangerous you need to be fully committed and they both said we want to do this and find out we know the risks and and don't ever feel guilty about it we want to do it more than ever so that's okay um but the the yeah no matter what contacts you've got or your background or what skills it's still it's still a tough journey it's a tough tough road um i'm pleased to say that the their commitment has been second to none they had to dig in at school they had to stay out of trouble they had to do all of these things to go racing so that's been an absolute dream from them from the early years because they wanted to go racing so much um, and they're making their way in their careers. They're both professional riders, um, earning a living. It's not not massive, but they, they own their own houses and they're paying the bills and they're off my hands financially, which is <laughs> is a massive relief because uh, that's that's quite a, that puts a strain on things in the early years. But um, you've got to give your your kids the the chance, and so we did what we could, and and they're their own men now and making their way in life, and they still need not to have any bad luck but they've, they've got good bikes on them got good teams with them and good people looking after them so so who knows but you can never predict where it's where it's all going to go but uh i think beyond the racing achievements um any parent just happy that the kids are happy and, and and they're happy and enjoying life and and doing an amazing job so uh we're happy with that but they they, they know now, they just need to keep committing and then see where the journey takes them. I've just got one last question, actually. Are there any stones in your career that were left unturned? Was there something you were striving to do? <laughs> <laughs> apart, apart from winning Daytona, my home Grand Prix, the Suzuki Airs, and a 500 Grand Prix World Championship. <laughs> <laughs> no. But again, where it all started, uh, in a happy place, just me and my mum in a council house. Um, it, yeah, I could never have predicted an absolute dream in my life so far. It's just never saw any of that coming. I'd have been more than happy just to be messing around in the field all my life and on motorbikes and having the pint down the pub with my mates. I, I never dreamt of anything amazing, but it's it's for whatever reason that it, it, it's happened in, in motorcycles and, and racing. And, have given me uh, an amazing life so loads of stones unturned but um I'm, I'm not complaining one little bit well neil mckenzie it's been a wonderful hour we spent with you it's uh, it's been fun to meet you i hope we get to meet you in person sometime soon and uh, thanks so much for taking the time with us today okay keep up the good work peter thanks a lot bye bye now bye bye I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Window on the World of Motorcycling. If you did, then please recommend the podcast to a friend. Thank you once again to Niall. It was a lot of fun, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.